Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 30 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues, and ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. To learn more about the Westminster Town Hall Forum, visit us online at westminsterforum.org where you can find links to our Facebook and Twitter sites to send questions about today's program. For the first time now, we're receiving Twitter input on the forum. If you'd like to tweet us, find us at Westminster THF, and we'll receive your questions during the program. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Larkin McPhee is a Peabody and Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker whose latest PBS film, Troubled Waters, a Mississippi River story, examines the impact of farming practices on soil loss and water pollution. Her previous films have explored topics ranging from personal finance to nuclear power to the illness of depression. She has served on the staff of National Geographic Explorer, the PBS series Nova, and Smithsonian World with David McCullough. You can find more information about her films at LarkinMcPhee.com. Over the 26 years she has worked on documentaries, she has been praised for her high standards of fairness, accuracy, and clarity. Common to each of her films is her goal to educate, inform, and inspire people to positive change. Her topic today is the documentary filmmaker in search of truth. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Larkin McPhee. Thank you very much. Um, as a director, I'm used to being on the other side of the microphone and or maybe back there with that cameraman, but here I am. I'm deeply honored to be speaking at the Westminster Town Hall Forum today. Over the span of my career, I've been fortunate to work on films that deal with some of the most pressing issues of our time. The environment and the use of our natural resources, psychiatric disorders and the health of our population, and the human consequences of the U.S. nuclear testing program in the Pacific, and a series of films on the merits of pure research. Today, I'm going to talk about five guiding principles that I follow that inform my work when creating a documentary. Casting great characters, staying open to the unfamiliar, listening well and listening to the silence, recognizing that you're never the expert of whatever topic you're covering, and lastly, always try to make a difference. Along the way, I also want to talk about some of the challenges and dilemmas that I have faced. My goal, apart from educating and entertaining you, is to try to surprise you with new information and new ways of looking at things. But let me first share with you two quotations about the influence of television that I've often reflected upon in my career. The first is from the author E.B. White of Charlotte's Web, who in 1938, when first seeing a demonstration of television, wrote, I believe television is going to be the test of the modern world, and that in this new opportunity to see beyond the range of our vision, 
we shall discover either a new and unbearable disturbance of the peace, the general peace, or a saving radiance in the sky. We shall stand or fall by television. The second quote is from Newton Minow, who in 1961, as the newly appointed chairman of the Federal Communications Commission under President Kennedy, made the now famous reference to television programming as a vast wasteland and advocated for programming in the public interest. These provocative statements stand out for me because they underscore the power of television. For better or for worse, television has a profound influence on us. As Minow later points out in his speech to national broadcasters, your industry possesses the most powerful voice in America. With that power comes enormous responsibility. So how do you make a film that has lasting impact? I believe that you begin by casting great characters. Over the years, I've come across some pretty interesting people in my research. Generally speaking, they're articulate and well-spoken. But eloquence is not always a priority in documentary films. Authenticity is. Sometimes you cast a person a few words. But you know where they stand by their honest convictions and emotional authority. Sometimes you cast unorthodox experts because they offer an important perspective. This was the case when I produced a film for PBS's Nova Science series on the Great Flood of 1993. I came across a man in the floodplain who was in the business of elevating homes above the floodwaters. Jerry LeVere had no MIT degree, just years of experience living in the floodplain and doing battle with the river. He took us on one of his walking, a walking tour of one of his elevated homes showing off innovations like breakaway walls that concealed the stilts the house rested on in non-flooding times and which would break free in, with the rising floodwaters. But what made me think the river had met its match in Jerry Levere was his locally-based solution to a problem that had bedeviled the community for decades. Jerry had built a superstructure made of steel beams and independent floating foundations that bore down into poured concrete some 30 feet deep, depending on the size of the house. This superstructure was designed to withstand a 500-year flood, a big one, as he put it. In my mind, I envisioned the rising waters hitting this home like a rogue wave, but I had not thought of a couple of important details. As CISO matter-of-factly put it, during a flood, if you have a house or a tree or a gas tank floating down the river and bouncing off this thing, it's not going to take our house. Sometimes a person's hard-worn experience offers perspective that you just can't find in the classroom. Authenticity is an important feature of any character you cast. On one of my latest films for PBS, Depression, Out of the Shadows, I was intrigued to learn about a secret society of CEOs who suffer from depression. We might think that wealthy, high-achieving people have it all and are immune to suicidal thoughts and feelings of hopelessness. But this is an illness that knows no boundaries. 
Depression afflicts people of all ages and socioeconomic status. It costs the U.S. some $50 billion each year in lost productivity. And yet it is often a taboo subject. I had the opportunity to speak with a well-known CEO of a highly regarded American company. But then someone told me to check out a CEO of a company in Texas I'd never heard of. While fame can help you get your audience's attention, I quickly found there was plenty to like about this relatively unknown CEO. First, he was extremely successful in his position. He had once been the youngest CEO ever of a Fortune 500 company. Second, he had gone public with his illness at a local business gathering and as a result had been flooded with calls from CEOs the world over seeking his advice. When I spoke with him, he had left his CEO position and taken over part ownership of the NFL Houston Texans. I immediately liked the visuals and the excitement of filming an NFL team. But what really clinched the story for me was this man's ethics. He had made it a priority to provide mental health coverage for every single football player on the team. No one had asked him to do this. Personal experience had taught him how widespread the illness is and that if left untreated, it could increase the risk for a whole host of other illnesses, such as diabetes and heart disease. In his mind, knowing what he knew, it was the right thing to do, notwithstanding the cost. As it turned out, his decision to provide mental health coverage did not hurt the bottom line. When you take care of the whole person, as the research has shown, your health costs do not rise. It was an important message to communicate to our audience. Still working on the depression film and having climbed the corporate ladder, I wanted a story on the other end of the spectrum. I had the opportunity to film a member of the notorious Bloods gang who was being treated for depression. When I spoke to this young man who had already served in prison, I hung up the phone thinking he might have been a CEO in another life. He was bright but troubled, and he was in the middle of trying to transform his violent role in the gang to that of a peaceful leader. He was also being treated for post-traumatic stress disorder, similar to what our military soldiers suffer from on the battleground. The difference was that this young man woke up every day to a war on the streets of America, a war that few of us see, even as fellow citizens. His story was dramatic, but the issue was whether the audience would relate to this previously destructive member of our society. Would the audience be able to open its mind sufficiently to his story, to his life, which had been bereft of options and opportunity? It felt risky, but in the end, he offered a unique and compelling perspective. His story, particularly in juxtaposition to the CEOs, helped me to capture depression's complex terrain and the reality that it knows no boundaries and impacts people 
from all walks of life. Second principle, stay open to the unfamiliar. I'm always on the lookout for new and unfamiliar ideas or paradigms that can surprise or challenge my audience. Some years ago, I worked on a series of films called Big Ideas about the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. The Institute attracts some of our greatest thinkers who are under no obligation to teach, go to meetings, or do anything except think. It's kind of a dream job. It's an environment that fosters pure research and the opportunity to dream big. The payoffs to pure research are not always readily apparent. One shining example a scientist talks about in the interviews we did is Maxwell's equations, which derived from pure research in the 19th century and would, much later, provide the foundation for radio and television. I spent months working on this project and was introduced to new worlds and viewpoints that I had never contemplated before. One of the most endearing, quirky, big-thinking scientists I met was a man named Freeman Dyson. In his early 20s, as a math mathematical physicist, he had paved the way for string theory with his mathematical equations. He went on to become, among other things, a futurist, an eloquent author. He's now in his 80s. Some of his ideas and essays literally turned my view of the world upside down. For example, he imagined that we might one day breed genetically engineered turtles with diamond-tipped teeth so that they could recycle our garbage for us <laughs> and especially use cars. <laughs> he also dreamed of riding a rocket to Saturn by 1970 with his good friend Ted Taylor. Together, they imagined zooming around the rings of Saturn. They thought it would be a good idea to stop on Enceladus, one of Saturn's moons where water is in abundance, so they could do a little hydroponic farming and raise a crop of vegetables for their voyage home. But it was his essay on the airplane and the airship that opened my mind to the importance of failure. I learned that about 100,000 different varieties of airplanes were tested in the early days of aviation. Of those 100,000 types, about 100 survived to form the basis of modern aviation. As Dyson characterizes it, the evolution of the airplane was a strictly Darwinian process in which almost all varieties of airplane failed just as almost all species of animal become extinct. Because of the rigorous selection, the few surviving airplanes are astonishingly reliable, economical, and safe. The Darwinian process is ruthless because it depends on failure. In contrast, the airship failed, Dyson argues, because it was driven by the ideology of the British Empire rather than by common sense. The airship had grown out of dreams of empire, and as a result, one of its prototypes, the R101, had never been given proper shakedown trials before embarking on its maiden voyage to India, which sadly ended in disaster. So the next time we venture into the friendly skies, 
We can be thankful that the airplane grew out of dreams of personal adventure and that many brave and inquisitive souls were willing to risk failure in their quest for success. Freeman Dyson, with his essay on failure, helps us to see how failure can be so much more than just failure, how productive it can be in technological and other forms of progress. Staying open to different viewpoints and the unfamiliar helps us to keep our minds open to new ways of thinking about old problems. Pure research and imagination run wild is good for society. Living in these complex times, sometimes feeling that our problems are insurmountable, I think of the Institute and the value of peer research. We can escape to better worlds. And one day, we might just create the world of our dreams. The third principle that I want to talk about is listen well and listen to the silence. When I was in high school, somebody I did not know well, a friend of a friend from a different high school, asked me to conduct an interview for a media class she was enrolled in. She explained that she'd be running the camera and she needed someone to ask the questions. Back then, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Nor had I realized for many years what a teachable project this would prove to be. The interviewee, as it turned out, was John Cage, the avant-garde artist and composer. To this day, I do not know how this high school kid got the interview. <laughs> Perhaps she simply asked. But John Cage was reasonably famous at the time. In fact, when I later attended college in the 1980s, one of his best-known works titled Four Minutes and 33 Seconds was performed at the college chapel. By then, I was studying the works of John Cage and other musicians in a class but I still did not understand the impact he would have on my career. Let me take a moment to describe the score. A performer dressed in black walks onto the stage, seats himself in front of a grand piano, flexes his fingers in preparation, and then does nothing. He does not strike a single note. At first, the audience thinks something's wrong. But in time, it dawns on people that they are there to listen to the world of music around them. The creaking of the wood in the chapel, the rustling in the pews, the coughs, the symphony of sounds in our everyday lives. Now returning to my teenage days with John Cage seated before me, I was nervous. This was my first interview ever and perhaps my last, for all I knew. I asked the first question, and instead of getting an answer, the question was met with silence. Not four minutes and 33 seconds worth, but the silence felt piercing. Oddly, I did not flinch or jump to the next question to fill the widening space. Looking back, I can only guess that John Cage's aura of kindness and generosity put me at ease on an unconscious level. And then, after careful thought, he spoke. The interview carried on like this in fits and spurts, and then we were done. 
Since then, any time I encounter silence when interviewing my subjects, I listen hard. The silence can be as important a clue to the truth of what they are saying as the spoken word. The question you put before your subject may indeed be the first time they have been asked such a question. By growing comfortable with the silence, you allow your subjects the chance to ponder something more deeply and make connections they themselves hadn't thought of before, perhaps. Or possibly, because they've agreed to tell their story for the first time, you give them time to share information that they've never articulated out loud before. One time, when this happened, I was interviewing a person about a difficult subject. In those few seconds of silence, this person decided to make a painful personal confession. This individual then turned to the camera and said, sorry, mom. This gesture was surreal and powerful and is the kind of account that can present a challenge for the filmmaker. While a filmmaker's mission may be to present the most dramatic, authentic material possible, often there are consequences to be considered. Among them, was there more potential for harm than good by including this person's public apology to one's mother? There is never an easy answer, but on balance, you always want to honor the relationship and bond of trust that forms in every great documentary between the filmmaker and his or her subjects. The fourth principle is recognition of the fact that I'm never the expert of whatever topic I'm covering. I have found it helpful to adopt this mindset because it fosters in me a deep and ongoing respect for whatever subject I'm tackling. It keeps me curious. I like to say I never have an agenda when working on a film. Rather, I follow the facts and the stories where they take me. Of course, over time, a film's narrative thread or framework begins to emerge based upon ideas, issues, and information that I've encountered typically multiple times from multiple sources. Or equally important, a lack of information that clues me into a void the documentary can fill. There's another upside to not being the expert. When I worked on big ideas at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, I had the opportunity to work with many scholars, including the anthropologist Clifford Gertz, the political scientist Michael Walzer of A Just War, and the real John Nash of Ron Howard's movie A Beautiful Mind. Many people asked me if I was not intimidated by these scholars. But honestly, by then, I had enough experience under my belt to know that I really wasn't the expert. So much so that it gave me the courage to walk boldly into the office of Dr. Edward Witten, whom everyone had told me was the next Albert Einstein, and shoot the breeze with him about string theory. Now, in all truth, I didn't exactly shoot the breeze. I was very mindful of his time, and I didn't want to be the one to distract him from the next E equals MC squared breakthrough. But after reading up on the topic, I did ask him some very specific questions that were troubling me. Trying to connect the dots as the non-expert would ensure that I could faithfully transmit the ideas, the big ideas of string theory, to a general audience that I know is just as curious as I am.
The last principle that I want to talk about today is always try to make a difference. More than 10 years into my career, I found myself telling my husband that I love my work, but I didn't know what my passion was. I had worked on shows about dogs, roller coasters, George Washington, the Nazis, and the Russian bomb. But if you ask me what my burning desire was, I didn't have a ready answer. My moment of clarity came after producing Dying to be Thin for Nova. All sorts of stories trickled back to me from people who, after seeing the film, sought help, went into treatment, or improved their eating habits. I experienced firsthand what, a film, what an impact a film can have on people's lives. I had produced a show on the nuclear disaster at Chernobyl for Nova, but the difference with Dying to be Thin was that I was covering an ongoing disaster. People were desperate for help and information. This realization led me to pursue the subject of depression for PBS. I had recently read a riveting article in The New Yorker about the illness, and I saw an opportunity to fill an even greater void. After Depression Out of the Shadows aired on national PBS, one of the most gratifying emails I received came from a doctor in the show. Part of it read, congratulations, we've been inundated with patient referrals. I think one of the key ingredients in affecting positive change is to offer hope. I always seek out hopeful stories because in my mind, the goal of a documentary is to educate, inform, and inspire people. Another goal is to try to make an evergreen film, one that will remain relevant for a long time. For example, we almost never mention a promising drug in films for PBS because dangerous side effects could be tomorrow's news. But if you create an informative, fact-based film that rings true to its viewers, it will likely have sustaining power over time. Dying to be Thin, now 11 years old, is still being shown and taught in high schools and college campuses around the country. Just last month, on behalf of my latest film, Troubled Waters, a Mississippi River story. I was in Montevideo, Minnesota to an accept an award from Cure, a nonprofit organization dedicated to cleaning up the river environment. A high school biology teacher told me that she's already using the film to teach her seventh grade students. She told me that these rural kids, some of whom live on a farm, never understood the purpose of the black coiled tubes that are stacked high on the landscape and are ubiquitous. These plastic tubes stored on the landscape are inserted underground to drain water from beneath the land in order to enhance crop productivity. These drainage tiles represent, as one of the show's scientists explains, the largest hydrological alteration of a landscape you could imagine across the Corn Belt and it's totally invisible. Frankly, I did not know much about these tubes either when I got started on this project, but they became important as we assembled a story about the Mississippi River and its watershed. This is the beauty of making a documentary. We are given the time to go deep, to make invisible worlds visible, to present enough information 
so that people like these middle school kids can grasp how a single drop of water in Minnesota is connected to the dead zone in Louisiana. When I was asked by the Bell Museum of Natural History to produce this film about the river, its water quality, and the dead zone in Louisiana, I welcomed the opportunity. This would be my first local PBS film ever, and I was excited to learn more about Minnesota and events in my own backyard. But the moment I began to dig into the story, I felt compelled to learn about national policy initiatives, like the Renewable Fuel Standard, the U.S. Farm Bill, and the Clean Water Act, all of which impact the river and its watershed from here to the Gulf. All of these competing interests and their impact on the land and water are intertwined. And I reported the facts as I saw them. As many of you know, the film generated controversy. While I had no political agenda, I felt that I had stepped into the middle of other people's agendas. Some of the facts reported in the film represented uncomfortable truths. But the film had undergone rigorous fact-checking and, and reviews, and it was fair and balanced. Different people have different viewpoints, but it is hard to dispute a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico that has doubled since 1985 and rivals the state of Massachusetts in size, or the fact that scientists currently estimate that agricultural lands in the United States are losing soil 10 times faster than can be replenished. We can do better. And this, that is the purpose of this documentary, to lay out the problem, identify potential solutions, and spark a dialogue around opportunities for positive change. Today, I have talked about five interrelated principles that have helped me over the years as a documentary filmmaker. In conclusion, I just want to say that filmmaking is a highly collaborative process. Each and every person I come into contact with on a film, from the expert to the man on the street, has played a role in the final product, whether seen or unseen. People give generously of their time, talent, and financial resources to make the documentary a reality. My search for truth is aided by the hard work and contributions of many whom I come to trust, and in whom I hope to engender trust. Thank you. Thank you, Larkin McPhee. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is documentary filmmaker Larkin McPhee. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I invite our listeners to visit us online at westminsterforum.org or to tweet into today's Q&A session at Westminster THF, or to join us for our next forum on Thursday, March 31st, at the special time of 7 p.m., Thursday, March 31st, when journalist David Brooks will be our guest speaker. 
And now, Ms. McPhee, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. In your remarks, you quoted from E.B. White some 50 or 60 years ago about whether we will stand or fall uh, on the basis of television. I hope that's not all that underlies our standing or falling, but now looking back as a filmmaker, have we stood or fallen, or was the uh, quote an overstatement? You know, I had a feeling you'd ask me a question like that, Tim, <laughs> or somebody would. Um, you know, I don't think we have the answer to that yet. I think we're, it's a work in progress, but I, I do think what's just recently taken place in Egypt has been fascinating with um, just the access to media. I mean, not just television anymore. E.B. White couldn't have commented on that, but I think that's a fascinating shift. And, um, you know, I want this to be the saving radiance in the sky as much as anybody. Uh, can you comment as a filmmaker on the uh, advent of reality television, a sort of uh, pseudo-documentary uh, uh, recording of our life? Well, um, you know, I've probably seen a few seconds worth of that kind of programming. I don't watch a lot of television, which may come as a surprise, but um, I actually record what I watch mostly um, because there, I'm, I'm afraid there's not a lot of television that, or, or rather the, some of this programming is not programming I want to spend time watching. Um, I don't think it's necessarily bad. I just think there's other things out there that are more informative and interesting that I would rather spend my time on. So, A lot of talk in Washington these days of reducing or cutting federal funding for public broadcasting. How might that affect the work of filmmakers such as yourself? Very directly. Um, I've already, you know, I've been talking to PBS of, about a couple of things lately, and they said if there was little money back then when we did the Depression series that they funded, there's no money now, and things are extremely tight. And I'm sorry about the recent incidents in the public news, but I, I do want to reiterate that it's only a dollar and 35 cents out of each of our pockets in America to pay for radio and public television. We represent this funding, one one ten thousandth of the budget. We are the PBS is the most trusted brand of, in of media out there, and I feel that this is you know we're it, we're not talking a lot of money, but it's vital money for all of us. And the Roper poll I also just read about said the general public feels that the money spent on radio and public television is the best use of our taxpayer money after the military. And uh, there are radio listeners out there today, but the military we know is sort of about this high and the educational funds about this low. So I think it's good, well, well spent. Larkin, how is the distribution of documentary films changing today from when you started some 25 years ago, especially with the advent of the internet? Is this affecting the kinds of topics that are covered in documentary filmmaking? Well, I mean, I think everyone's out there producing films and, and there's a lot more availability, which is exciting. Um, the first part of your question, Tim? How is uh, the, the advent of the internet affecting the distribution of documentary film? Oh, I know what I wanted to say. Um, surprisingly, you know, documentaries have gotten a lot of attention, you know, with people like Michael Moore out there producing. 
Um, but when you look at the documentary films that go out into the theaters, they reach a remarkably small number of people. There was an article about this in the New York Times not long ago, and I realized, my goodness, I'm in a very good place at PBS because depression re reaches many millions of people, and the average documentary I read was about 180,000 people or something. I was shocked how low it was. Now, people like Michael Moore will attract huge numbers, but there's few people like that that are able to do that. As long as you've raised him, let's talk about Michael Moore. Uh, any comments on uh, his, his style of filmmaking? You say that you begin your documentary films without an agenda. He clearly brings an agenda. Any comments about that in terms of how it impacts what he yeah. films? Um, well, uh, Michael Moore, I think, is trying hard to bring our attention to big issues of our times. And I think that's a very valid and, you know, effort, but um, I think it's, um, I'm sorry. Any comments on Michael Moore's? Oh, you know, uh, it was Jerry, I, I was thinking of reality programming with, um, you know, there's, there's shows out there like Jerry Springer that I think, you know, talk about reality programming. Do we really want to spend our time there? I'd rather see a Michael Moore film, be stimulated, maybe know that not all of it is true or it's being exaggerated, but um, my only objection with him is when he crosses the border. Like with Charlton Heston, you know, he has some scenes where he goes too far and he's not completely disrespectful to the person. And I think that's un unfortunate, but I do like that he's bringing issues of healthcare to the public, gun control. I mean, we need more public discussion. And in in your documentary filmmaking, you, you purport to begin without an agenda. If that's the case, how do you choose your subjects? Well, it's interesting. Um, the Troubled Waters film, the Bell Museum asked me to work on that. I had done a film on um, the flood of 1993 for NOVA, so that was part of why the Bell Museum came to me. Um, so that's, yeah. But they, I mean, ideas come, I get ideas from reading The New Yorker. That's how I pursued depression. Um, sometimes, you know, I get a phone call saying, do you want to do a show on heart disease with Larry King? So it sort of happens in many different ways. When you receive an idea like that and begin to develop it, how do you fund it? What's, what's the funding source for a documentary filmmaker? Well, with Dying to be Thin, the McKnight Foundation actually asked me to produce that film and came forward with the money, which was really unusual and very fortunate. With depression, it took four years to raise the money and we were lucky that there was an initiative at PBS that helped us to eventually raise that money. But it's, it's not easy to raise money and this is where some of these seed money that we get through taxpayers is very helpful. Uh, any comments you'd like to say about further about the controversy at the University of Minnesota and the the uh, suspending of that film there. W were you involved at all in that controversy directly? No, I was, I was not involved. We were largely baffled as to why this took place. And I like to say that you always look for the silver lining of any um, difficult situation. And the silver lining was that many, many more people saw this film. And that was a great thing. When you create a documentary film, how many people are on your team? Surprisingly small. Um, it starts out with myself, you know, initiating the research, along with usually, you know, an associate producer, and then you go out in the field and you have a cinematographer 
and an audio person. So it's remarkably small. Then the next phase is you go into an edit room with your editor. Um, and then at the end, you bring in a number of people to help you post the show. You also work with animators who are invaluable to help get across some of those invisible worlds and um, you know images that are difficult to grasp. So it's, um, but in the field, it's quite small. In your own experience of documentary films that you have seen, what which films have been particularly moving to you or motivating to you or caused you to respond in a way that was transforming for you? Well, you're making me think of one film called My Architect, or My, My, My Architect, I believe, by, about Louis Kahn. One of his sons produced the film. And I remember at the end of the film, you know, they talk about Louis Kahn's life, and there was much to like about him because he really didn't pull things together until he was about 50, and he, he had gone over to Rome, I think, or Euro in Europe, and he came back and he did these little drawings of, I think, bathhouses in Chicago, and I was sort of stunned that it was at age 50 that things started to come together for him, and then towards the end of the film, they showed one of his buildings in Bangladesh, and how these citizens were weeping, it was so beautiful, and then I sort of finally got how important civic space is and architecture in this room. I mean, just how we live and how we um, create space and how we honor our histories and our traditions. So that movie was one of my favorite movies and I was really surprised by it. Um, another one I could tell you about was when I was in college, I took a class on Vietnam and I, I'll never forget seeing Hearts and Minds, the um, documentary about the Vietnam War. And if I had an inkling that I'd be a f filmmaker, that might have been an early inkling because I was very captivated by that film and that story. As a filmmaker, do you see yourself as an artist? And do you believe art has a strong impact on political and worldly issues? Is it your goal for your work, for your artwork, to be a major influence on life today? Are you an artist? You know, it's a fun, it's a, yes, uh, I'm an artist. <laughs> I'm, I'm a journalist, I'm a mother, I'm a teacher. I'm, I've discovered in filmmaking you're so many things, uh, um, but in your life you're so many things. So I don't think it's just, just that. But art is so vital. I was thinking of this today. Susan Sarandon was doing a pitch for SodaStream. I read about it in the New York Times. And I love SodaStream. And SodaStream is this little bottle that you put carbonation into your water from your tap. So no longer do we bring bottles into our house because we're thinking of the environment. And it was the mayor of Minneapolis that didn't directly tell me about SodaStream, but just said, let's get rid of our bottled waters. So I saw SodaStream. A friend out east said, you got to use this. And we do. And, and there's a case of the combination of um, the walker. That's the mayor himself and the Walker Art Museum doing a piece on plastic. And this is art, right? Talking about too much plastic and its harm. And all those things coming together in my head and saying, we have to get this out of our house. And so I think the art, you know, I think about PBS being threatened. And I think, you know, we go to museums and we go appreciate art so we can think and be stimulated and perhaps change our behavior. I mean, it's happened to me very directly. So I think it's pretty vital. The many films you've made, which one of them do you relate to the most personally, and why? Um, you're asking a lot of good questions. Let's see. Um, That's because we have so many high school students in the room. <laughs> they always ask the best questions. Um, you know, I'm going to tell you it's depression. And 
not so much for person. I mean, there was no depression in my family. I didn't have a particular reason, except that I saw all these people suffering. And I had read that article in The New Yorker, and I couldn't get out of my head that this enormously successful person was often lying flat out on the ground and sort of, um, you know, debilitated. Um, but that movie allowed me the chance to be a real filmmaker in the sense that I worked so hard to see visuals for that movie and bring it alive to people, try to talk about bringing in, you know, young people. I wanted all ages, I, I want with all my films, all ages to watch. But how do you visualize a mental illness? I mean, it's not the easiest thing, but you start to think in themes and you start to think of light and darkness. And these ideas would come to me, but I also go to feature films and I look at them. And one night I was watching Blood's, Blood's Diamond with my husband. And I was at that moment at time trying to figure out how to open the whole movie. And Blood Diamond begins with the character lighting a match out of darkness. And I said to my husband, that's it. I have to meet my character in darkness. And he ends up lighting these candles. And then at the end of the film, when we've taken you through many stories, eight other people, and his, his, his book friends, the whole movie, we end with him around that, in that same room, but bathed in light with friends. And it was just so um, perfect visually. I mean, I'm always looking for visual metaphors, and I think in depression, I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time thinking about it, but I was also forced to because it was a tough subject to film visually. And I think the goal is always to make images, you know, find the beautiful images in anything you're doing. Those of us who aren't filmmakers think of your art as basically something that happens behind the camera with people or scenes in front of it. Actually, much of your work involves editing. And I'm wondering how your editing affects the perspective you put into a film. Have you, for instance, ever found yourself at a point in editing where you've decided to maybe compromise your artistic principles in order to make what might be a better film? I don't ever feel like I've had to compromise. Um, any, you know, I work with a, an editor here in town, um, often on films, and I say to people, I like to do this with anyone, I mean the cinematographer as well. I really like to let these people do their jobs, they're really good at what they do. So when I come in, um, I take a film, I shoot it out in the field, the editor's not with me, and I see that as an enormous advantage, and I say, here you go, and sometimes I give him outlines, but I just kind of want to let him play with it and see what he can come up with, what magic he can come up with, and I find that often happens, and that's really exciting to um, allow that. So I feel, if anything, he elevates. Um, I mean, that's what an editor does, is they can elevate your work because they may come at it from a very fresh way, and you work together, and you can, you know, it's a lot of back and forth, but I... Have you ever had a really good idea for a documentary film that hasn't been funded or hasn't seemed to be a good idea to others? Well, you know, I wanted to do a film on obesity a long time ago. On obesity? On obesity a long time ago. And then um, by the time that show got funded, I was, it was the same time that depression got funded. So, you know, I, I guess... Can't do everything at once. Right. That's right. depressing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> number of questions, Larkin, have come forward asking about your next project. What are you thinking about in, in your next documentary film yeah. enterprise? Well, you know, there's a couple of things. Um, 
sometimes, you know, I could, I'm between projects, finishing up a couple small things, and, you know, I, I could get a phone call tomorrow about some topic I don't, you know, that I'd love to do. But right now, there's sort of two things on my mind. One is end of life. I think this is an area that we don't talk a lot about in America, about how we die, and I do think that's very important. Um, and then there's, to me, I've had an idea for the last two years in my head that I'm trying to get on paper now about the American dream today. I feel like many people feel that it's slipping from their grasp, sort of what's happened to our middle class, um, what are our country's priorities, especially in these difficult economic times. So that's what's kind of on my mind and I'm planning to write about um, as I am between things. Can you tell us what in your background, maybe in your childhood or in your educational experience, that fostered in you this desire to seek the truth, this curiosity about digging through to the truth? It's funny, I, um, I grew up with a father as a lawyer and a sister who became a prosecutor. I mean, I think that there's a little bit of that background going on. But as a kid, I remember loving documentaries. But I also was a really early fan of 60 Minutes, and I really liked the show. I think I liked it for the reasons that Don Hewitt, the former executive producer, outlined. You know, he came up with a formula to mix hard news with investigative pieces with entertainment. And I think that when we make films, documentaries, the best documentaries are ones that tell you a story. And so I guess I'm just drawn to a mix of elements because I think the goal is to keep you um, enthralled or, or keep your focus, you know, so if we can entertain you a little bit as we're educating you, that's really important and great. We have a number of aspiring filmmakers in the room with us today and listening on the radio. What advice do you have to them about getting started in documentary filmmaking, perhaps drawing on your own experience of getting started? Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about what I did, which was um, when I came home or got out of college, I went to National Geographic Television because my inklings were in that direction, but not necessarily film. They offered me a secretarial job, and I couldn't even type. So <laughs> I, I thought, no, that's not quite what I want to do. So I waitress made money, and I traveled for a while in Asia, and I took a camera with me. So that started to tell me that I was drawn to the visual images and just liking to take pictures and so on. But then I ended up coming back to DC and I, unfortunately, I, I hate to tell you this, sometimes you have to take jobs where you don't get paid any money. So I went to C-SPAN and I remember being, having an interview and this man looked at me and said, I'm going to do you a big favor. I'm going to give you an internship here. And so it's true, he was doing me a big favor and then that opened the door for me to get a job at Smithsonian World with David McCullough, which was pretty exciting, you know, not long after that. Um, I think the key is to be persistent and to be a yes person. No matter how difficult the situation you're in is, your boss, your this, your that, you be the most accommodating, um, hardworking person out there and you will be noticed. I remember being at Nova and being hired with one of my colleagues who was a very funny person and he'd always get my executive producer to laugh. And I kept saying to my husband, I can't make her laugh. And he said, just do the hard work. You know, don't worry about it. And you know what, that really is true. Just work really hard and show your interest and just show up.
We end with that good advice. Thank you, Larkin McPhee.